Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Hotel Connections, the global leader in crew logistics and accommodations. Hotelconnections.com. Clear, a leader in touchless travel. Learn more at clearme.com slash airlines. And Seabury Capital Group, global reach, global scale. Seaburycapital.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to this week's edition of Airlines Confidential. I'm Ben Baldanza, here in the cockpit with Chris Chimes, as we get ready to take you on your weekly aviation joyride. I'm glad you're with us. Hey Ben, hope everyone's week is going well. We've got a lot of news and items to cover, so we're going to just jump to it. This past week, we covered off the final two of the big four U.S. airlines with both American and Southwest reporting results. If airline results this past year were a playlist, I think I would change my taste in music. But it was pretty somber and dreary, and uh, that's the world we're living in right now, unfortunately. American reported a record loss of $8.9 billion for the year, and Southwest reported its first annual loss since 1972. All told, with these two airlines, along with JetBlue, Alaska, and Hawaiian now in, the U.S. airline industry collectively lost $34 billion in 2020. Ben, we've been talking a lot about financial results the past few weeks. But any other key points that you saw specifically in the AA and Southwest results? Yes, Chris, but I just got to think about that number again, $34 billion. What an amazing number that is. I remembered in 2008 when fuel prices went to $147 a barrel. That year, the industry lost, I think it was $10 billion, and everybody thought it couldn't get any worse than that. And here we are, more than triple that number. Pretty amazing. In the Southwest report, I thought it was interesting. It, we got to go back to what you said, too. Their first loss since 1972. What an amazing company that's been financially, I think. They are, they pushed their, finan- their strongest balance sheet or what they call their strongest balance sheet. The fact that they didn't have to furlough anyone, which is also a big thing. The two things I thought were most interesting in their report was they used the word, we're ready for a resurgence in travel. And that was almost as positive as Delta was in terms of saying all these passengers are ready to come back, but they said they're ready for it when they come back. And they didn't go so far as to say, we know that's right around the corner, but they used that term. And I thought that was interesting. The other thing that I thought was interesting about their release is they spoke really positively about the Max coming back. And that doesn't surprise me. They're pretty invested in that airplane. They've got a number of them. They talked about the efficiency of that plane, the safety of that plane. Rather than sort of just let it sort of stay in the background, they put it right out front there that we're happy this plane's back and we're looking forward to flying it a lot. I thought that was really a positive, actually, for them. On the American side, I thought that it was it – was, Really interesting. I think they tried to make as good a story as they could out of it. I thought it was kind of funny that one of the one of Doug Parker's one of his stated highlights of the quarter was the extension of the payroll support package. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure for them that was that, but that's a weird thing to talk about. A highlight of the year is you know the government gave us money. And he also characterized 2021 as a year of recovery. 
and said, we know demand isn't back yet, but then said, make no mistake, it will return. So they're sort of also in this camp of things are coming back. The other thing that I thought was most interesting about the American call was in the question and answering, their head of revenue, Vasu Raja, talked about the power of a network business, which sounded very 90s to me, actually, (laughs) in a way. And then he made a statement that I thought was most interesting. He said that because of the network business, they still get 50% of their revenue from markets where they're the only airline or completely dominant airline. And in those markets, their yields are 50% higher than the markets that are commoditized. That was his word. I thought that was fascinating language, Chris, to say that the company's betting on the places it can hide from low fare competition and hide from sort of the commoditization of the product. In other words, where they can still kind of, you know, gouge people. (laughs) <laughs> Maybe that I'm sure that's not what they meant to say, but overall, I thought those were really two interesting earnings with Southwest talking about their long history of safety and ready for resurgence and great new plane coming back and American talking about we got more money from the government and, you know, we got to find more markets where we don't have to compete. Was dominant your word or their word? Because dominant was my word. That okay, was because I, 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 I lived in a world where you didn't say anything about, didn't use that word in any sense. So I'll, I'll make sure I want to make sure that that was your word. Yeah. Uh, that's the economist in me talking. That, that's right. <laughs> you know, I, I remember a day at some point, I don't know if it was back when I was at A4A or during 9-11, but the industry had tabulated that, you know, in one year they had accumulated losses that wiped out all the profits in history of the commercial airline industry in the U.S. So I, I think that, that we need to go back and recalculate that because certainly 2020 uh, puts a completely new point of view on that statistic. Yeah, you know, I remember, I'm sure one of our listeners can correct us on this, but I remember, I think it was like 2012 or 2013 or something, there was one report about the fact that the industry had sort of reached a break even from when the Wright brothers first flew, that sort of it was a net neutral industry in terms of (laughs) profits. And I think that was in this, you know, in the prior decade, actually, since it's 2021 now. And it's possible that this year wipes out most of the earnings from the last eight years. Okay. So we've got a challenge for our geeks out there to come back with the right number. So uh, that's right. Well, Chris, these earnings also gave airlines the chance to respond to the rumor that the CDC was looking at requiring COVID testing for all airline passengers as part of the check-in process. Right now, that's true for passengers coming in internationally, but not domestically. But this new rule would be for domestic air travel. Doug Parker, Gary Kelly, Joanna Garrity all addressed the matter during the calls. And soon a broad cross-section of the travel industry voices sort of joined in, all calling the idea completely unworkable. What's going to happen here, Chris? Well, as Ben, we've talked about, I'm, I'm out of the airline business, but in the cruise sector. So we carefully watch this space as well. But I appreciate the fact that the CDC is trying to get more aggressive in testing as part of really is a what's a kind of multi-pronged approach to the pandemic, but we don't have a consistent testing capability. There are many cities where on any given day, you can only get a test if you're presenting symptoms of respiratory illness. 
So now you're going to move testing resources away from accessible places like pharmacies and urgent clinics to the airports, I guess is part of this. It, they don't answer the question with regard to how we're going to expand testing, just we're going to do testing somewhere else. Well, that's right. And what I've read about this is whenever someone has sort of talked about this as, as an idea, they say because testing has improved and they sort of throw it off with that kind of line. But that needs a lot of pressure testing to it, no pun intended there, in terms of how easy is it for someone to get that test. And if I decide, hey, I want to take a trip tomorrow, am I able to this afternoon go get a test to make that happen? Or will, we able, will I be able to get it in the airport and get the results in time before I board the plane? Those are huge issues. I've got no doubt that the technology of testing is moving very rapidly, and that's a good thing. Uh, I was on a call with some communications executives this past week where some testing company executives were talking to us about what they're doing to rapidly test classrooms of students. And of course, that's very important to get schools open and keep them open. So I, I think the cost of testing is going to come down. I think the rapid nature of testing is only going to improve, but I'm not sure we're there yet to be able to move to this kind of a regimen today at airports for all airline passengers. I think that's right. And I think that's what A4A and others are talking about. You know, Maybe this is a good idea, maybe it's not, but there's a real practicality to it. And what I think airlines are seeing is coming off a $34 billion loss year, now making a public policy that would essentially cut off most travel that's even happening now. And that's the biggest fear, I think. Exactly. So kind of sort of related to that, been tucked away in all this downturn has been a growing rumble about slot rules of all things. For some of our newbie listeners, airline takeoff and landing slots are controlled and allocated at capacity constrained airports like New York LaGuardia and, and JFK in the US and Heathrow and Stansted in the UK. They generally have use it or lose it rules requiring the airline owner of the slot to use it for an operation. Otherwise, these very valuable landing rights must be forfeited. In a global aviation downturn like we've seen this past year, many slots are not being fully utilized as airlines pare back their schedules to meet lower demand. And the use it or lose it requirements are either suspended or ignored. This is now setting off a debate about these slot rules, which have frequently been criticized as a way to protect incumbent airlines and limit competition. Do you see this getting any traction right now? You know, Chris, I hope it doesn't in the short term. Now, I'm a fan of real competition. I'm a fan of allowing more competition in airports. I think there should be lower fares in cities like New York with physical slots or L.A. with, you know, constrained gates, which almost work like slots, even though they're not a slot controlled thing. But that said, what's happened to the airline industry here is not something they created and if anything, you could say that the industry was sort of in its strongest position coming into COVID with multiple years of profitability, balance sheets that looked strong at the time, not knowing what they'd have to withstand, right? And so to, to say that now is the time that we should open up these airports to more competition because some airlines might be willing to use them more, I think is 
it's kind of taking advantage of a tough situation. Now, do I want the slot rules to maybe go away or be lessened at big airports? Absolutely. Should airlines like JetBlue and Spirit and others get more access to restricted airports? Absolutely. That'd be good for customers. It'd be good for fares. But I don't think you use an external event to say you have this asset in your company that whether it was awarded fairly or not, what people might argue, it was still awarded and it's still something that that company holds. It's a weird thing to say we're going to yank that from you right now, given that there isn't demand for you to use all these things right now. So it's a really good economic discussion, but I think it's a discussion that we should have once demand is kind of back and say, what's the best use of limited resource, not use the crisis to say, here's the time to rejigger those things. That's my sense. Yeah, I, I think you're right, Ben. Um, this is a free market argument, but this is anything but a free market right now. You've got governments around the world imposing travel restrictions, and as we're talking about testing requirements, and it, we're in the midst of a global pandemic and a financial downturn. So I, I wouldn't call this a, a truly free market that uh, should be leveraged right now. So I think it's, I think those who are kind of trying to pedal this either softly or not should just take a flyer no pun intended and um (laughs) and uh take a break from this right now we'll be right back we want to thank clear travel with confidence with clear touchless fast safer airport travel clear's touchless identity verification is available in 34 airports across the u.s moving you quickly and without crowds through airport security Enroll today at www.clearme.com slash airlines. The Airlines Confidential Podcast is now available on Apple, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Pandora, Spotify, TuneIn, and many more. Use your favorite podcasting app with just one click at airlinesconfidential.com. With Chris Chimes, I'm Ben Baldanza, and this is Airlines Confidential. Seabury Capital is a specialty finance and investment banking firm, boasting a 25-year track record of advising key clients in aviation, aerospace and defense, maritime, and financial services and technologies. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge along with state-of-the-art analysis, technology, and solutions, as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburycapital.com. That's seaburycapital, S-E-A-B-U-R-Y capital.com. It's time for listener questions, and we've got a few follow-ups from some previous discussions, which we'd like to get to first. And we actually love the fact when uh, our listeners either prove us wrong or point out something we forgot. So Evan from Atlanta had an observation about the response regarding FAA rules about pilots being out of the cockpit. Guys, you gave the lawyer's answer to that. Here's the view from a pilot. Deep vein thrombosis isn't just a passenger concern. It's a concern for those of us in the cockpit, especially on a long transcon flight or international flight, which can mean up to eight hours sitting up in the cockpit. The bathroom break with a few extra minutes to stretch your legs is indeed a physiological need. The stretch can also improve alertness. A 737 cockpit, for example, is quite cramped and there isn't much room to stand and stretch. So a few extra minutes outside the cockpit could actually be a good thing for crew and passengers alike. 
You know, I really like that answer. Thank you, Evan. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's why in the legal answer, which was reading from the FARs, there's not a specific time requirement. It doesn't say two minutes, five minutes, anything. It just says it's okay to leave for physiological needs. So I think you pointed out something that absolutely makes sense. We all know as customers, it's good to stretch while we're in our seat and it's nice to get up and walk a bit too. So I think that that makes a lot of sense and I'm glad he brought this up. I, I sort of joked his physiological need was talking to the flight attendant, but actually his stretching his legs makes much more sense. In truth, this particular flight was like a 90-minute flight, and we didn't want to name the route or the airline, but he makes a good point, and we appreciate being called on it. Well, that's right. And then Kyle from Minneapolis had a comment about our discussion about the Air Indigo boarding ramps, which I thought were somewhat unique. I certainly hadn't seen it before, but he flew southwest to Honolulu last year, and they deplaned via a similar system that essentially, with essentially a portable ramp rather than stairs. Come to think of it, Ben, and and when um, Kyle wrote in, I started thinking as well. I think I've seen and experienced these. Uh, American Eagle uses them certainly at LAX at their satellite terminal. So again, we were just not as thorough as we should have been in doing the research and addressing the issue. The other thing I think we didn't point out was in the U.S., the Americans with Disabilities Act requires the handling of guests with special needs in certain ways. And so the ADA doesn't exist in a lot of foreign countries or its equivalent. And so we've got better options for passengers who need assistance getting off a plane and using stairs isn't the most viable option. So Kyle and Evan, thanks for keeping us honest. We appreciate your follow-up. You know, Chris, in an earlier show, I mentioned that years ago, the then president of Tiger Airways in Asia, when talking about the fact that they didn't use jet bridges and they only boarded by stairs. And I remember asking him, what do you do with customers in wheelchairs? And he said to me, if you can't climb my stairs, I don't want you in my airplane. And I thought then, and I think now, I'm so glad we live in a country where businesses aren't allowed to think that way. Yeah. Uh, well, amen to that one. Switching gears, we've got a question from Matt in Rochester. I'll try to unpack this as best I can here. My question relates to airline growth and scale. Airlines have big fixed costs to cover each year, and I understand that big global carriers are able to spread those out over larger fleets. Clearly, a small airline with a few planes does not have the scale to operate profitably while doing all the things you're required to do to operate safely and in a complex regulatory environment, like having jet bridges. I'm curious if you have any thoughts about the minimum size fleet for an airline to be viable without needing to grow into a behemoth. Some airlines that have pursued growth for its own sake have grown themselves into insolvency, such as Brana for People Express. Can a smallish carrier operate profitably over the mid to long term? I realize much depends on the specifics of equipment, markets, and strategy, but I'm looking for your general thoughts. This is a fantastic question, Matt. And we talk about this idea in my class at George Mason University about is growth important for airlines? The reality of the airline business is that it's highly dependent on people and airplanes, of course. 
And people and airplanes, as they get older, get more expensive. So just the fact that the airline is getting older, the plane's going to need a little more maintenance, use a little bit more fuel. Everybody's going to get paid a little bit more, especially those on union contracts that are paid on a seniority basis where they get bumps. And so what happens is smaller airlines have an enormous economic incentive to grow because by growing, they can mitigate those cost increases. The plane, which becomes a year older, the pilot and flight attendant, which become a year more senior with the airline, are now blended in with a brand new airplane and a first year pilot and flight attendant, for example. And so that's why you've seen airlines like a very small Southwest grow at a very high rate for 30, 40 years and become a behemoth, right? And um, and you've seen carriers that start smaller, like an Allegiant or a Spirit or a JetBlue. And as they grow, they're able to keep their costs relatively low because without that, the natural costs of the airline would grow. So I think this is a fascinating thing because the airline business is different than others in some ways. Like if I want to break into the cell phone market, Chris, not only would I have a hard time competing with, you know, companies like Apple and Samsung, my only realistic way of doing it would probably be if I could make a better phone, right? That does something theirs doesn't, or does it faster, or does it a lot cheaper or something like that. And in the airline business, you don't necessarily have to do anything better. You've just got to be newer. Because if you're newer, you don't have the longevity costs built into your company. So it's a real interesting issue. I don't think there's a safety issue with smaller airlines in the U.S. I think the FAA manages that really well. And if anything, looks even harder at those kind of carriers because they're concerned. Well, their fares are low. Are they spending where they need to? So I think they get plenty of oversight. But I think it's the economic incentive that makes them grow. Is that too geeky an answer, Chris? No, I mean, it's certainly a smarter one that I could ever give. <laughs> but <laughs> you know, I, I think, too, what you're seeing is carriers like Allegiant and Sun Country are figuring out ways to grow that involve creative ways to use the aircraft and not necessarily buying lots more planes as much as using their fleet and growing modestly fleet-wide but growing their network and their points of service slowly but creatively so that, again, they're not overextended. Is that fair? I think that's a really good point. I mean, Allegiant grew by essentially finding a market nobody was serving. You know, really small cities with nonstop service to big destination points. And before then, big airlines were comfortable carrying that traffic connect over their hub what Vasu Raja calls the network effect. <laughs> and Allegiant said, we can carry this stuff nonstop. And by matching it with a low capital cost, older airplane, we can be lower utilization, only fly it a couple days a week and make it work. And it's a model that's worked incredibly well. And that model was there all along. They were the first ones to identify it. So your point's really well taken. Well, finer wine is next. But first, we want to thank Hotel Connections, the global leader in crew logistics and accommodations. 
Hotel Connections is a Fortune 1000 company that makes travel management easier and less expensive with their AI-powered booking applications, intelligent learning algorithms, customizable rules engines, analytics, and global negotiated rate programs. For travel, logistics, hotels, transport, and technology solutions, visit hotelconnections.com. So Ben, speaking of Allegiant Airlines, this complaint is from Monique in Lebanon, Ohio. I am furious with Allegiant Airlines. Our return flight from Orlando to Columbus was bumped forward from 1.55 p.m. to 1.22 p.m., which caused us to miss our flight and incur $225 extra to get another flight. The only notification I got was to my Yahoo email the day before the flight, which being in Florida, I had no access to my email, so I had no idea. No text message or call came from Allegiant to notify me and my family of this change. We then had to fly into another airport that was two and a half hours away from our original airport, leaving us without a vehicle and having to have someone come get us and give us a ride. What an absolute cluster when a text or call would have prevented it all. And on top of that, getting charged $225. This is not acceptable and a very poor way of doing business. We most always fly Allegiant, but due to the extra cost, time, and horrible inconvenience, this will deter me from flying Allegiant again. Well, Chris... Like you said last week, you hate disagreeing with customers, but I think this is more of a whine than anything also. Essentially, a 30-minute earlier flight should cause no one to miss the flight. There's a reason airlines say get to the airport an hour or an hour and a half before your flight. You don't know how long the security check is going to be, right? And so... The fact that they would have made the 155 but missed the 122 is just shocking to me that they would have cut it that close in the first place. Now, the fact that Allegiant actually had an option that they could get somewhere close, like admittedly they had a, maybe it wasn't Allegiant that they flew on, probably the next Allegiant flight on that same nonstop wasn't going to happen for a couple of days because that's typically Allegiant's schedule. So I'm glad they got home, but I'm guessing that Monique is not going to get to the airport with under 30 minutes to spare anymore. (laughs) Even if you're not a frequent flyer, you need to sign up for text alerts. You need to download apps for your airline that you're flying. She did get a notice the day before, so it was kind of on her that she hadn't checked it or didn't have a way to check it. But in today's times especially, there's no reason not to stay in touch. Whether Allegiant deployed all the mechanisms they have to alert their passengers, I can't tell. But I think every flyer needs to do what they can to stay in touch with their carrier. Well, that's right, Chris. And I'm not the most technically competent person in the world. But I think it's kind of fair to say that any phone that can get a text can also get an email. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, uh, fair fair point. So that's a wrap for this week's edition of Airlines Confidential. Please, ladies and gentlemen, put away your tray tables as we get ready to land. But first, I want to give a shout out of the week. And this goes to Peter Ingram and his team at Hawaiian Airlines. While we talk a lot about the big domestic carriers and the big international carriers, probably no airline has been hit harder by COVID than Hawaiian over this past year in terms of the squeeze on traffic and on revenue and their overall isolation from the rest of the airline world. Under Peter's leadership, they have weathered the worst of it, I hope, and he did a nice job laying out their path forward during his investor call this week with their earnings, as well as some uh, very thoughtful media interviews. 
we were colleagues together at American Airlines more than 20 years ago, and it's been really fun watching his growth in the industry and his ascension to CEO. So I just want to call that out. That's a great shout out, Chris. I, I feel for Hawaiian in that they've got such a unique challenge. Not only are the flights to Hawaii long, which have its own issues, but it's so destination specific that it's as Hawaii goes, that airline's going to go, right? Yeah. Well, my shout out goes to Gary Kelly of Southwest for making as part of his opening statement with pride the fact that they've been able to manage this crisis without furloughing any employees. Now, they're not the only airline to have done that, but they're the biggest to have done that. And the fact that they not only did that, was were able to work with their unions to make that happen, undoubtedly working in ways that and the union had to give something to sort of make that happen. But that really goes to leadership in this industry, that you can have an airline that carries 20% of the traffic in the United States that's as big as, as an airline is in the United States, really. American United, Delta Southwest are all about the same size. And within the domestic United States, you know, Southwest might be bigger than one of those other three if you take out the international travel. And yet that they could get through this and keep everyone employed, I think is just amazing. And not only do it, but call it out as something that your company's proud of and you're telling your shareholders, this is the way we're going to run our company. Great job. Well, we'd love to hear from you with feedback, questions, or comments. Remember, we have a new phone number at 202-964-0177, or you can email us at questions at airlinesconfidential.com. Or visit our website at airlinesconfidential.com and follow the links to contact us. We're available on all major podcast platforms. Until next week, I'm Chris Chimes. And I'm Ben Baldanza. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.